You are listening to the Wellacopia podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Network. I'm Eva Minkoff, your host and fibromyalgia warrior. On this show, I have candid conversations about chronic illness with both patients and practitioners. In other words, people like you and me. Today's guest is none other than Lauren Friedman, a fellow chronic illness podcaster, writer, and activist living in Los Angeles. Originally, she's from New York City, as am I, and she's seen her fair share of top docs. She was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease and sleep disorders in 2017, and this sparked her interest in the invisible illness community and her fellow Spoonies. Her podcast, Uninvisible, which was a winner of the WeGo Health Awards this past year, yay, is a clear compliment to ours, featuring interviews with survivors, their loved ones, advocates, and experts in varying healing modalities from medical to holistic. I highly recommend checking out Uninvisible for even more awe-inspiring content related to chronic illness. In this episode, Lauren and I talk about what it means to be quote-unquote brave, how we can advocate for ourselves through self and community reflection, and the importance of embracing our stories and the stories of those around us. As expected, chatting with Lauren was like hanging out with an old friend at a coffee house. Super sweet, super silly, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Also in this recording, I mentioned that I will be giving a TED Talk, which at this point in the recording had not been done, but back in February, the TED Talk did in fact happen. It was recorded and apparently it went well, although it's still quite a blur to me. Uh, but regardless, due to the coronavirus delays, TED has still not published the video online and I'm super anxious for it. Are you anxious for me? Okay, maybe I'm being a bit silly, but anyway, that's coming soon. Before we begin, a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. But before we actually get started today, I want to touch base with you, heart to heart, spoonie to spoonie. This global pandemic is real. A lot of us understandably feel afraid, confused, overwhelmed, and uncertain. So I want you to know that I'm here to help. Monica is here to help. We, your community, is here to help. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you, your family, and your loved ones are safe. I'm in Rochester, New York with my husband. Just left my family in New York City where it's getting really intense. And thankfully, other than serious cabin fever and some fibro fog, I'm doing all right. Staying clean, keeping my distance, keeping myself occupied and productive. While it, com while it pales in comparison, today I was actually supposed to be going on a special trip with my two best friends from grade school our first trip together, just the three of us, in the 20 years of friendship. So I'm pretty bummed about that. But you gotta do what you gotta do. And we gotta do by sucking it up and doing what's right for everyone around us. And that means hungering down inside 
for the next several weeks. I am determined to do whatever I can to help flatten this damn curve. So if you've listened to my episodes before, you know that I work with and live with medical and wellness professionals. And from the East to the West, the general consensus in care during this time has been that you stay home. This is actually coming from me, a major extrovert. You wash your hands a lot with soap and water. Keep social distancing in mind. And please don't go to the ER unless it's an absolute emergency. Help us help you, as they say. I'm 100% certain that if we pull together as a global family, we'll make it through. In fact, I believe that within this crisis lies an opportunity for us to grow stronger, wiser, and more resilient as a result. But based on the facts and the stats, I feel strongly that the most important thing we can do is stay home and stay well. For many of us, life was so hard before this pandemic. My heart breaks imagining the stress, fear, and anxiety that some of you are feeling right now. So again, please know that we are here for you and we love you. Please reach out to Monica and me anytime to share your feedback, your story, just say hi. Shoot an email to chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com and uh, stay safe and stay well, everyone. I've been living with chronic illness for most of my adult life. Um, It started uh, as a teen probably before that, um, that I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and I was having panic attacks all throughout high school that I didn't know until I went to college and found a therapist who I still have a relationship with now, like almost 20 years later, um, who sort of specialized more in my area that those times that I was collapsing on the floor and crying uncontrollably and catching my breath were, that was what a panic attack was. So I was experiencing those from a very young age. And then over the years, I got that under control. I was also diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder at one point, right after 9-11. I, I, I'm from New York and um, I, would, I really got fearful particularly that the people I loved who were in Manhattan on that day, my mom was working in the Empire State Building, um, you know, that something would happen to them. And I, I catastrophized constantly and, and got into rituals and all that kind of thing. And so I, through a series of years um, and cognitive behavioral therapy was able to rationalize my thinking and um, find my way through all of that. So therapy has always been in my life in a very positive way um, and helped me work through a lot of that stuff. And then um, I had all of my depression, anxiety, panic attacks pretty much under control. Um, From time to time, I've had to go on medication to sort of get through rough patches and um, I I really believe in it. (laughs) Um, and not just the rough patches, you know, I mean, I'm currently on antidepressants and I'm, I, I function better on them because I'm a depressive, you know? Um, and 
when the idea of medication was first suggested to me, I was really resistant. And it was after long talks with the people I trust the most, who are my therapists and, and my close friends and family, that we were like, you know, this could be a positive thing to try. And so I did it to try it. And my moods were so hugely improved that, um, you know, it's something that I have stuck with. Um, cause I can really, I think now I'm at a point where I really see the difference myself, um, where it was very clear to other people before now it's really clear to me. Um, and I know that I deal with my everyday stresses better and better. Um, and I'm, you know, incorporating a lot of mindfulness techniques that really help me, um, handle the things that life throws at me. Um, so been dealing with all of that for a really long time and I'm kind of a pro now. <laughs> so um, then a couple of years ago, it's now two and a half-ish years ago, um, I went through a career change. I had trained as an actor um, and lived abroad for many, many years and came back to the States and had a, a sort of damaging relationship, um, moved uh, to LA because I was just like, I need to get out of New York. Um, and I'm still in LA. I really like it here. Um, but I changed careers and was working in business management and was finally feeling more in control of a regular paycheck and things like that. You know, it only took me till my 30s to figure that out. And, um, so that was going really well. I was the right hand woman to my boss and, um, feeling very in control of my career and, and the trajectory of, or trajectory of that, where that was going to go. And I, I had just turned 34 at the time and I got hit with extreme fatigue where it was like the weekend after my 34th birthday, I spent the entire weekend in bed. So 40 of the 48 hours that weekend, I was fast asleep. And on the Monday, I immediately made an appointment with my doctor because I was like, something's up. And I went to see my GP and um, she brought the nurse practitioner in and the nurse practitioner suggested that they run an autoimmune panel, which was very of her, um, really, when you think about it. And it turned out that I was positive for autoimmune and that I was going through what's called a Graves episode. And this usually happens at the onset of Hashimoto's disease, that um, actually what happens is that your system is kind of going haywire, your thyroid's going a bit haywire, and you're getting extremes um, sort of up and down. And I was in extreme hyperthyroidism, which is odd because of all the fatigue and because I'd had rapid weight gain and sort of sluggishness in general. And the nurse practitioner was like, you know, it could be, this could be onset. We might be catching it as it's happening. And I ended up being referred to a rheumatologist and an endocrinologist. And this begun an entire series of finding a doctor who would listen to me, which, um, is very much a big part of my experience and what inspired me to start podcasting. Um, that I went to a number of doctors, some male and a number of them female, who told me I was fine. Um, and one endocrinologist I went to, who I, I went to for quite a while, uh, 
was like, oh, you poor thing. You must be feeling terrible. We're going to get you better. And I was like, oh, how caring. She's really sweet. And um, she got me on Synthroid, which is a commonly prescribed medication for thyroid disorders, particularly hypothyroidism. And so she got me on this medication that would support my thyroid and prevent me from going into an underactive state. And one day we were sitting in her office. This is probably, you know, three months later, sitting in her office and um, I'd sort of managed to get myself in before work. And um, I was sitting there and I felt like crap. And um, she looked at my chart and she looked at me and she said, well, you're doing great. And I was like, I'm, I'm not okay. I'm not doing great. Um, and at that point, she'd never even told me that I had Hashimoto's disease. And I, I you know, I, I said to her, Do, is this Hashimoto's? Like, we know I have hypothyroidism. Is this Hashimoto's? And it took me having to ask her for her to be like, well, yes, like that wasn't a big deal, but this is a lifelong autoimmune condition that I'm going to have to manage. And um, then she said, but your numbers are fine. And I was like, okay, but I'm still extremely tired. And at that point, she had already referred me for a sleep study. So I was in the process of getting the results from a sleep study, which did indicate that I had sleep apnea, um, which, and now I sleep with a CPAP and it makes a huge difference. But I was like, I'm, it's still, none of this is okay. I was like, I'm still like, look, we know we're like working on things, but like, I don't feel any better. Um, and she was like, well, I think maybe it's time you see a psychiatrist. And I sat there kind of in shock and thought to myself, if you properly looked at my chart, you'd see that I already do <laughs> um, and have for many years. And um, the fact that she wrote me off like that um, and that it was a woman who told me it was all in my head was quite shocking to me. I'd never had an experience like that. Having grown up in Manhattan, I was always like, I would go to the doctors who were on the, the best doctors list. You know, I went to see all the top doctors and, um, you know, never, doctors were God. And here was a doctor who I was supposed to take her word as scripture. And she was telling me that it was all in my head. And I was like, oh my God, but it's, I knew it wasn't. I knew it was something physiological going on. As it happens, she wasn't testing all of my numbers. Um, she was only testing my TSH, which in thyroid disorders is not enough information. Um, and according to my TSH, I was fine because the Synthroid was replacing my thyroid hormone, but she wasn't monitoring all of the other aspects of the fact that I had this autoimmune disease. She wasn't monitoring all those other things. And this is something I learned much later. Um, but at that point, I remember getting in the car and calling my mom crying and you know driving to work and my mom was like well you're not going back to her again and the concept that i wouldn't go back to a doctor was shocking um but also very freeing that my mom sort of gave me permission um she was like yeah you don't have to see her again because obviously she's wrong um you know your body better than anyone else and i was like yeah i really do actually <laughs> you know go all mom. of these yeah go mom and um, all of these realizations that started unfolding from that point um 
were very new to me and it took a lot of grappling with my own self-worth to really understand the weight of and the importance of this conversation that I'd had with my mother. And um, I started looking into alternative pathways. So at this point, I'd been to a number of endocrinologists, I'd been to rheumatologists and sort of not really gotten very far. And while I was then later diagnosed with the sleep apnea and started treating that, that began what was about a two-year process to even sort out my sleep apnea, which was a nightmare in and of itself, um, because the first doctor I went to didn't suggest the right CPAP mask and didn't let me know that there were other mask shapes available. And so I felt really claustrophobic and I couldn't sleep with my CPAP on and it freaked me out. And so that was a failure. And so then I went to the next step, which is a dental appliance and had a horrible experience with this dentist. Um, and then uh, finally found another sleep doctor who I currently still see, who's at UCLA. UCLA I've had wonderful luck with. Um, I now have an integrative endocrinologist there who's incredible and has been on my show. Her name's Dr. Rashmi Muller. Um, and I have my, my pulmonary sleep specialist, um, Dr. Padilla, and they've both really changed the game for me. Dr. Padilla was the first one who was like, well, did you try the nose pillow mask? And I was like, what's a nose pillow? Uh, <laughs> it does and so now- yeah. So now I have a little mask that like sits right under my nose. It's like a little pillow under my nose, like I'm doing right now. And then it just sort of straps around my head. So it's not sort of like the big thing that sits over your whole face, like Darth Vader, you know, with like an elephant tube. And the other thing was the problem I had with the sleep ap apnea mask originally was the tube came out of here, out of the front. And it would slap me in the face because I move around in my sleep. Sorry, that's just a funny visual, but oh, it's but terrible. it's just the most the fact that that people have had sleep apnea for generations, and that this is still the technology that treats it is sort of archaic to me, you know. But yeah. um, it works. <laughs> if it works for you, it works, you know. And um, so then he suggested this nose pillow, which I now have, and it's here. And in fact, it's the top of my head where the the tubing comes out. So it doesn't hit me in my sleep and I can like put a little hook over my bed and hook it over there and then it's sort of neat, you know? So this was a whole drama that, that lasted two years. Um, and in terms of the thyroid stuff, at that point, um, I spoke to a friend who is a health coach who also has Hashimoto's and was going through her own stuff at that point. And she was like, have you looked up Dr. Isabella Wentz? And Dr. Isabella Wentz is a, she's a pharmacist who lives in Colorado and has cured herself of Hashimoto's or manages it very well, I should say. And I went on her website and it was the first time I'd found resources for my condition because that was a thing. As soon as I got diagnosed, I was like, I want to find information. And I couldn't find anything that was community-based. And through Dr. Wentz, there was a list of physicians who specialized in thyroid disorders on her website. And my mom and I went through, I say my mom and I, it was really my mom because I was so tired working full time that my mom sort of took it up for me, took up this project. And we found an integrative doctor in my area who I started seeing and I still see as well. Um, so I now have sort of like two integrative thyroid specialists, if you will. One's an integrative endocrinologist. The other one specializes in thyroid disorders and um, Lyme disease and other things, which I got tested for and cleared of. Um, and so I've been able to, over the last two and a half years, create this team. And it's been a very long journey, but 
I noticed so many gaps as I was working toward diagnosis and treatment that were so easily filled with conversation and community. And in, in seeking community and in seeking information, I had also simultaneously started just posting on Facebook because I was already writing a little bit um, of women's health um, material, articles and stuff. And at the time, I just posted on Facebook, you know, hey guys, these are my symptoms. This is what's going on. Um, help, <laughs> you know, I was really just reaching out into the void. And you would not believe I'd say 95% of the women I know, particularly the women under 40, um, were like, oh, I've had a thyroid crisis or I've had this thing go on or this chronic illness. And all of a sudden, some of these people, very close friends, were telling me about things they were going through. And I was like, how did I never know that you were going through this? And part of my women's health activism had been talking about the fact that we don't talk enough about periods and, and you know taking care of our bodies and our female parts, if you will, you know, and, and sort of removing the stigma from those conversations. And here I was having these conversations about chronic illness that seemed to be equally as stigmatized and equally as silenced. And the conversations were so helpful to me. They, I created my own community, um, and I was able to do that. Not everyone else has those resources and is able to do that. And I recognized that. And I also felt that these, these conversations were really important. They were very vital and they were changing my perspective on the world. And I was already still working as the voice actor, which I still do. Um, and so I have microphones and I thought, what if I hit record on these conversations? And that's exactly what I did. And so in January last year, I launched my podcast on Invisible Pod. And the focus of the podcast isn't on one kind of illness or um, it's very, it's a much broader approach um, because I realized that a lot of this conversation was about illnesses that are invisible. There are things that people have that you can't see. Um, genetic disorders or autoimmune disorders or um, you know, mental health issues, things like that. And so um I was fascinated by this concept of invisibility, chronic invisibility, um, particularly how it did largely affect women because it's 75% of people with autoimmune disease are women, but also the people who were stigmatized the most in those conversations appeared to be women. Of course, as I got more into those conversations, it was much more complex than that. Um, but it, a lot of this work really stemmed out of the work that I was already interested in doing in my spare time anyway spare time for a chronically tired person, <laughs> you know? Um, and one of the things that always happens on the show is that I talk to these wonderful people and it's always type A people, <laughs> you know? It's always those people who have a lot we wanna contribute to the world. Um, and then we get hit with something. And whether it's the universe telling us to slow down or checking our egos, whatever it is, because for a lot of us, chronic illness can be an ego check and a very positive one, ultimately. Um, whether it's you know, a lesson that we need to learn in self-care and self-management, um, whatever it is, whether it's an intellectual battle we have to go through, an emotional tide that we have to roll, roll with, you know, um, for whatever reason, though a lot of these chronic illnesses seem unfair 
what I wanted to focus on was not the really awful stuff, but the fact that when you find community and when you find resources and when you seek information, you as an educated patient can self-advocate, but you can also find healing and find the positives in this very negative experience. Um, I'm not a wallower. I have my moments, um, being that I err on the side of depression, right? Um, but one thing I always do is I go like, you know, I can have this allotted half hour or this hour and wallow, and then I need to move on. Um, and sometimes I need little reminders. Sometimes I'll text my mom and she'll send me like a, come on now, time to move on, you know? Um, and I think we all need that. And community fills that gap. Um, having these conversations fills that gap. And, you know, the other thing that started becoming very fascinating for me the more I was having these conversations was that my, in my training as an actor, the thing that always kept me coming back was my interest not only in, in psychology in the sense that it influenced human behavior, but also in storytelling. And I recognize that in giving people a platform to share their own stories, be they patients or uh, the loved ones of patients or practitioners, and I'm interviewing practitioners across varying modalities. And that starts all the way in the holistic practices of like Reiki and yoga and acupuncture and all the way to traditional Western medicine. Um, there are stories on both sides. There are very fair arguments to be made on both sides. And um, it's none of this doctor versus patient thing. Really the consensus is that we're all partners in our care. And um, that we all have great ideas for how to improve the system. And I felt like everyone deserved this soapbox, um, or at least the people who I've been speaking to so far, <laughs> right? Um, so really being able to nurture people in their stories as their stories have been unfolding or um, you know, at, at sort of the apex of their stories at different points along their journey to wellness and learning from them some of the ways in which they've navigated their own crises has been so nurturing for me. Like I've been nurturing other people, but I tell you what, it has been very key to my healing personally. Um, so, you know, there's a very selfish reason I created this podcast and it was that it was helping me heal, you know, hearing other people's stories made me feel like I wasn't alone. And I felt so alone for months when I was waiting for a diagnosis. And months is nothing for some people. There are people who wait years for this. So I was very lucky, but I also realized that not everyone is that lucky. And these, these conversations have been so vital to me. And, and not only about the, what the chronic illness community looks like, but the diversity within that community too, that like, you know, there's always a tendency to talk about like white people's stories. And I'm not interested in hearing every white girl's lament. Um, you know, another thing for me was very much about, let's talk about the fact that particularly in healthcare, we know that people of color and women in color in of color in particular, um, 
really have a higher mortality rate, take longer to get diagnosed, you know, so that there are those things going on. But then what's it also like for trans people? Um, what's it like if you're gay in this system? Like, so really broadening those conversations, because I already had an, an a vested interest in those conversations because of my own life and interest in social justice. So bringing that into these conversations as well and understanding privilege in these conversations because privilege inherently exists in the medical industry um, and giving the conversations a more global context in, in that sense was really important to me because I do think that politics are personal and that you don't go through anything with your own body that isn't political. <laughs> um, so inherently these conversations have also, you know, turned into conversations that involve that kind of arc. Um, and I'm talking to people not only here in the States, but all over the world. And that's really important too, because the medical system's different everywhere. The way in which people are diagnosed and treated is different everywhere. Um, so yeah, it's important for me to continue that broadening. Cause like, even now I haven't begun to address you know, all of that diversity, but I'm trying to. So um, really working toward that as well has been very important to me. And I've been really fortunate um, in the reception of the podcast uh, and in the people who've been willing to come on the show and talk and um, who have really emboldened me in my own journey, um, but have just been incredibly open and, and, um, brave in sharing their stories. So they've given me a lot of courage too. I, the term brave, I feel like has been received in, in different ways. I'm curious yeah. what you, what you think about that. Cause I would say the same thing, but people. Yeah. That's a really good question actually. Um, because this concept of bravery, I know that there are you know, from the outside, people who don't have chronic illness, they have people saying, oh, you're so brave. And most of us are going, I'm not brave. I'm just trying to get through the day. <laughs> you know, like this isn't brave for me. Like, it's not like it's all an emergency. It's like, the, I, this is my life now and this is how I live it. I do think that it's a double-edged sword, you know? Um, and I think it's still okay to say that people are brave because you know what, even if we're saying we're not brave, we're way braver compared to your average person whose body is doing just fine. So, you know, the fact that we get out of bed and get dressed and live our lives every day, you know, um, even if all we can do is get out of bed and get dressed. Um, yeah, that is kind of brave. I do think it is. And I think it needs to be acknowledged that like what you can achieve is pretty amazing. That like we need to like, remember the gifts that our bodies give us in that sense um, and find gratitude in the experience. I also agree that it can get condescending when you have lots of people saying, you're so brave, you're so brave. But you know what? I'd rather have people saying you're so brave to me than what's wrong with you. Yeah, I, I personally agree. I rather, I rather hear something that's a, a positive uh, yeah. relation to what I'm experiencing rather than a negative. Uh, but yeah, like I totally, and, I mean, the other side of this is also just because I'm being brave because I got dressed this morning doesn't mean, you know, Jane Doe down the street who doesn't have chronic illness, isn't brave for going out and living her life every day either. You know, I think, 
yeah, okay. The whole social media side of things, right? Like we get into this world of Instagram and, and the way in which we see people's lives is very editorial, right? But I do think living your life unapologetically is really brave. I don't care who you are. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. I also think it's chronic illness aside, it's, it's very relative to what is, well, replacing the word bravery with courage. What mm-hmm. is, when are you going outside of your comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Replacing or replacing comfort with, with courage to do something that is either unknown or, or just something that uh, ignites a bit of fear. In sure. So, you know, that could and be- And for chronic yeah. illness people, like, I mean, for me, that's travel now, you know, like being away from my home comforts and not, you know, not packing all the things that I need that like, if I have back pain or if I have, you know, this fatigue moment or, you know, I don't want to get sick. Like if I forget my, my little like mask when I'm traveling and stuff, I freak out. And not only that, but it also takes courage for me to wear my face mask around other people and not give a damn what they think, Mm. you know? So it goes both ways, right? Like, sure, there are, I would say it's not like now that I have chronic illness and I'm managing it on a daily basis. I don't have more fears in general in my daily life. I just have different fears. So I think it's understanding that it's like, it's not about comparing yourself to other people and going, well, what she's going through is so much more trauma than what I'm going through. That doesn't make your trauma any less important. It doesn't make your experience any less important. Um, and I think acknowledging that what you're doing for you is a brave thing and that you're going out of your comfort zone and facing fears and finding ways to do that that are manageable for you, that's really that's really cool. And it's really courageous and it's really brave and it's really badass. And like, when I, when I have a day where I don't do something, like I try to like get myself doing something every day. Like I realized this in hindsight, you know, um, because I'm just living every day, like whatever. But then I have days where I'm like being interviewed or I'm doing different things or sending that email where I'm telling people what I'm worth, you know, um, or that I'm worth more than they think I am or things like that, that, I think we are all faced with those kinds of challenges on a daily basis and it's how we face them. And I think when I, if I look back on every day, I'm like, oh, I did something that day that scared me and that day that scared me. And you have to keep doing those things. And I think getting chronic illness throws that in your face hardcore. Yes, it does. But, and it makes, and like you either, I mean, I just aired an episode on Wednesday this week. And one of the things that, Um, my friend said on the show was when you have chronic illness, you have two choices. And one is essentially to face it and to live. And the other is to cower and not deal with it and possibly get sicker and decline. And it was never an option for me not to live but there were definitely a few weeks there, especially in the beginning, and there have been little dips here and there. And it's where, especially if you have chronic illness, but even if you don't have chronic illness, I hope that you find your people, right? For me, it's where I text my friend Dana, or I text my mom and I say, like, okay, 
here's all the overwhelming stuff that just happened to me. And I text them the laundry list and the like, here's why I'm freaking out. And then they just say to me, okay, one at a time. Or, you know, what about the fact that you did this thing and that was awesome? And I go, oh yeah, okay, cool. You know, like, and they're the people who showed up for me. Sure. Some of us lose people when we get diagnosed and we lose people along the way because they can't handle the fact that we're chronically ill. But what's happened to me is that some of my friends who weren't chronically ill have discovered that they too are in fact chronically ill and they were in denial. So you never know what's going to happen. Um, but it's, it, to me that, that highlights the importance of finding community and people who lift you up and like, yeah, sure. My ego does much better when I have people fluffing it, <laughs> you know? Um, and I know for the most part what I'm capable of, but sometimes I need reminders and I think we all do and, and seeking community and seeking to find your way through that instead of getting lost in what my dear friend Katie calls symptom porn. Symptom porn. Um, <laughs> symptom porn. Um, and, you know, sitting and feeling sorry for yourself, you're allowed to do that. But like at a certain point, you also need to find a way through that. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty disciplined about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I can't figure it out, I reach out to the people I know who can help me. And, and that's where having these conversations and knowing that they're like, knowing you're not alone. Like if I, if I can't talk to my best friends or to my mom or whatever, you know, I, I will go and find my, the people who I've connected to through the podcast or, you know, the, just the people who I know who are in the same boat and see what they're talking about and see if I can find some inspiration in what they're talking about. Because yeah, there are a lot of platitudes on the internet, but some of them are kind of helpful. <laughs> some of those sayings hit you right in the feels and like they can help you snap out of something. So I think it's just about reaching out and finding the resources. Like I feel like I'm an octopus that way and I do do that. And if you're not that kind of person, finding a home base, whether it's my podcast or yours or the community around that, that can give you that kind of nourishment is extremely important. It is. It's really the foundation of my well-being. Um, having started Wellacopia, uh, actually, you were talking about your Facebook experience, like your personal Facebook and yeah. posting about that. It's exactly what happened to me. Mm. Uh, it was the instigator for for starting Wellacopia. I, I think I just asked, curious, does anyone have a chronic illness? Or maybe I described something and I got 50 responses yeah. in an hour. And because I, everyone has one they're not talking about. Right. And I was, again, <laughs> like you, I knew some of these people really well. And then there were some I hadn't heard from in a long time, but they were like, oh God, this is an opportunity to speak up and reconnect with Eva. And it really blew my mind. I was... Yeah. 25 at the time, you know, we're all like millennials. And I was like, wow. So I'm definitely not alone here. No. Uh, but how, how would I know otherwise? Um, no one talks about it. And now people message me on Facebook relatively frequently saying, cause they, they associate me with that in a, way, in a positive way. Right. Yeah. Cause we're the spokespeople now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, hey, my friend has this illness or I've been feeling this way. Yeah. Who do you connect me with? What do you know? Just anything. And and I love that. At first, I remember someone who I hadn't spoken to in years contacted me like, don't you help people with chronic illnesses? And for just a moment, I was uh, unhappy that that was why they decided to talk to me. 
But sure. I really think that was actually a power. They saw me as a reliable source. And it was before you saw yourself as that. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now I see it uh, like in the light of trust. Mm. Uh, so and yeah. Trust. Because like we've earned our stripes, <laughs> right? <laughs> like we've been to plenty of doctors. Um, you know, we people are hearing our voices and they know they they can get a sense of whether or not they they sort of like our vibe and would would sort of be on the same wavelength in terms of the way that we're sort of judging you know so i think being able to be that trusted source is like i think it's such a compliment you know and it shows that the work that we do is being recognized by people you know like cuz i get those emails too and i'm always like i'm quite humbled by it i have to say because I always think, well, first of all, this, this person, I, I don't wish chronic illness on anyone, but it is on the rise. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that's, you know, hugely that very much is related to what's going on environmentally, depending on where you live and what your stressors are like and all that kind of thing. That's a conversation for another time. However, um, I think my first thought is always, oh, this poor person that they have to deal with this. And then I go, okay, but how wonderful is it that they're brave enough to reach out? I always, when people reach out to me and they're, they say, I have this illness and I listen to your show or can I be a guest on your show? Things like that. The first thing I always say to them is like, I just want to acknowledge how brave it is that you're reaching out and asking for help. Because I think one of the things that comes up in a lot of the conversations I have is how important it is to do that and how in a lot of ways, so many of us have been, we've been socialized not to ask for help and not to say we're not okay. How are you? I'm fine. You know, it's not like, how are you? Well, do you want the real story? You know? Um, and being able to ask for help takes cojones and if you're able to do that, I bow down, I stand you. Like, I think it is amazing when people do that. Um, seeking help is the biggest step to getting better, I think, you know, because part of it is acknowledging that something's up. Um, and it's the first step in finding community in a lot of ways. And um, that. I mean, like, yeah, so, okay, oh, maybe maybe saying people are brave can be condescending, but also, like, it is really brave to say, help, please, or, you know, can you check in on me? Can you hold me accountable? Um, all of those ideas are not ideas that we're taught to embrace from an early age, particularly women, mm. but also men. I mean, equally, and everyone in between. I mean, I honestly think that there's a lot of, well, boot, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, that like you sorted it out yourself. But for a lot of people that doesn't work and there's a reason that doesn't work, you know? Um, so saying I'm not okay and can you help and, um, or I have this and I just want to talk about it, I think is the cool, I think it's the coolest thing. Like this is where I, I, I like fangirl on people all the time. Cause I'm like, it's so cool that you want to talk about this, <laughs> you know? Um, and 
I, I mean, I've said that to a few of my guests where I've been like, I mean, some of them, it's also like legit. I'm fangirling. Cause like I've read your book or like I've watched your show or, you know, but it's also, I'm like, this is just so amazing. The story that you have, like, this is the other thing is that like, if you really sat down and talked to people and found out what their stories really are, wouldn't that probably blow your mind? Like <laughs> it does. <laughs> and like you and I get to be on the receiving end of that every day. And that's incredibly, again, it's incredibly nourishing, like, um, holding space for stories and, and, and for understanding other people's experiences because our perspectives are also different is the best thing you can do for yourself and for everyone around you. As I, do more of these interviews, it's really fascinating to see what are the common denominators in a lot of our thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned diversity. There is so much diversity, right? Because chronic illness doesn't just, um, doesn't just affect one type of person by any means. Even if it is more common in women, I actually think there's a lot more men who have it that we just don't know about. Well, yeah, I think that's probably like talk about really it. true. That's a whole other topic. I mean, if um, anyone's taught to like shut up and get on with it, it's, oh, yeah. it's all of us, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, it, one, so something that I'm hearing constantly is, I mean, obviously we all have that backstory, unfortunately of the, it's all in our head. I found actually 96% of people, I've found a bunch of stats on stuff like this now. It's like 96% of people with chronic illnesses have been told it's all in your head at least once. Definitely. I'd, I'd say that that's probably not even an accurate percentage it might be more who aren't even reporting it yeah oh yeah you oh, know it's probably a hundred <laughs> yeah and um 66 of americans claim to not or like report not trusting their their physicians fully and that's americans yeah. I mean, can you imagine what that is for chronic mm-hmm. illness worldwide i yeah. shudder to think yeah it's and i hate that because mm-hmm. i i like to state that i love doctors um, I hate the system. I really, really do blame the system. I don't mean to be all yeah. like activist about it, but a lot of doctors do too. <laughs> oh yeah, because so, they're yeah. taught. They're taught to see it that way. I really now I haven't seen a new doctor in a while who has treated me in, in that way, right? Mm. Like, like a piece of meat <laughs> or yeah. you know a diagnosis. I've been. But that's because you've learned how not to. Be yeah, that I'm really good at picking them now. And I can advocate for myself, but at the same time, I'm very compassionate to what they go through. Mm -hmm. And I try and encourage them to look at me and people like me differently because it's like, I get that you don't have, or you don't think you have the time to connect with me and see me as a full person, or that you don't want to not give me a diagnosis because misdiagnosis might, um, Sorry, you don't- Might be worse. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they, they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place a lot yeah. of the time. And, and I do acknowledge that. It's that we both need to work together to change. And uh, I'm trying to promote the, the uh, a, a definition of advocacy as speak up about what you care about, but not against them, but yeah. with them. Yeah. Not a war. Absolutely. Unless there is a glaring injustice that needs to be discussed. I completely agree. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you there are really- always caveats, but yeah. Oh yeah. And in, and I think this is, so I compare doctor patient relationships to re- relationships. That's my whole thing. Yeah. That they're just relationships. 
unfortunately they're not being looked at as relationships like human no. relationships they should be um but just like any relationship we were talking about dating earlier like you know as much compassion as i have for my ex who has addiction i didn't want to date him because of that that was mm -hmm. my choice and i was like you know what that's not acceptable for me in my life so sorry i'm gonna go and it's the same with a doctor it's like okay you i'm trying to work with you you're not getting it well, and it's about it. understanding your boundaries and your worth right think, in that sense right. isn't it exactly. you know like what am i willing to put up with and what am i not willing to put up with and like also knowing that there's no such thing as the perfect relationship you know right. that like relationships may be fraught here and there none of them are th this like hashtag goals kind of thing you know like good relationships are ones in which there's constant communication clear communication and a discussion of establishing boundaries from the very beginning i think you know and i think we take that for granted a lot of the time too we think well people will share the same values as me and and that's not necessarily true no. so sometimes you have to establish those with people and sort of create your own verbal contract in order to really f develop trust over time. It's, yeah, you really hit the nail on the head. In fact, this is just like, I'm all giddy because a little bit of, um, well, I don't, we'll see if it's out when this, <laughs> when this airs, um, but I'm mm -hmm. actually doing a TED talk in February. Oh, wow. And it's literally on this, you actually like just listed off a bunch of things that I'm talking about <laughs> and how relationships are, like successful relationships and again that doesn't mean they're perfect but success yeah. means like they can move forward perfect is perfect is perfect not is real <laughs> perfect is like that's it's it's an unattainable goal it's why i even mentioned when we were talking about addictions before that perfectionism is an addiction you know i right. I, I don't believe in perfect um and that's i'm a recovering perfectionist so i can say that right like done is better than perfect and perfect is false <laughs> and you know it's all about just doing the best you can do and putting good out there putting good energy and good intentions into a relationship a, a job a project whatever it is um and if you're doing anything less than that that's where things get funky you know indeed um i actually I'm a, I'm a positive person as are you, but I kind of want the word perfection to start being looked at as a negative word. Like it's in what way mm. I think, okay, let, what, how can we use the word perfect in a, in a positive sentence? Mm. Yeah. Like yeah. it was the perfect day. I don't know. That but, a lot but, of weight to it. <laughs> I know. But by the same token, then we could say that about the word brave and we could say that about love we could say that about so many things i think it's also like it's interesting because one of the conversations that comes up on my show a lot too and i'm sure you talk about this is is language right that mm -hmm. we need to be more careful with our language i also believe that you can be too careful with certain things you know whether that's language or or effusions of love or or perfectionism whatever so i think with everything it's about moderation same thing with choosing your treatment plan <laughs> or you know um doing like an elimination diet um it's all moderation it's about removing and then putting things back in and so i still think like i have i have days occasionally where i think that was a perfect day because it 
I cannot imagine how it could possibly have been improved, you know? And well, I can, I can always imagine how it could be improved, but you know, I can imagine that. And I go, yeah, but if that happened, like it would be even better, but it was just great the way it was. And sometimes that's about acknowledging that like what you have is enough. Yeah. Um, and I think that now we're getting into life and good life advice, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think that's absolutely true particularly if you're someone who lives with chronic illness, like you're going to philosophize a lot on this kind of stuff. And um, it's funny that you said I was a positive person. Like, yeah, I endeavor to be, but I'm still a New Yorker. So I err on the side of caution and cynicism most of the time. And I think I'm a recovering cynic. And I think living in California has really helped, (laughs) you know, that like, it's like chilled me out majorly and the sunshine keeps me happier. So it's easier for me to be positive about things, but it doesn't mean I'm not critical or I don't want to like go out and people watch at lunch and criticize strangers from a distance with my (laughs) friends sometimes, you know, like, so or like make up stories about, that's what we do all the time is we make up stories about people at the next table and things, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think you just have to also keep it real. Like, I also recognize that a lot of the stuff I'm talking about today and the stuff that we've touched on, it's not easy for a lot of people to grasp it yet or to get there yet. But like my message is you will it, you can and you will, you have to will it, you have to be open to it, but you can get there. And getting there is about breaking things down into manageable tasks. Like Number one, find my community. Number two, find my people in that community. Number three, you know, find my doctors based on recommendations from within my community and people that I trust. Number four, you know, pick my doctors and pick them based on what my needs are and, and what, my, what my desired outcomes are, you know? So, and, and then like five, pick my treatment plan and the thing that feels best to me. So like this is, it's a, it's a constant ongoing process I'm constantly editing, not only my, my, you know, approach to everything, but like my medications and, you know, cause like your body changes and you need to change with it. And, um, also recognizing that like you are subject to change and that's okay. You don't have to make a decision and have it be the final decision either. You're allowed to change your mind. Just like you're allowed to get divorced. You're allowed to change your mind, you know? So, um, I think it's about constant evolution and being open to that within ourselves and in other people. Because in order to have good relationships, you have to be able to grow with people (laughs) Um, and evolve with them and allow them to do the same. So there's a level of holding on to things and letting them go at the same time that is, it seems untenable, but it's not. Um, It's just, it's that element of, it's interesting, I remember when I was an actor, I say was like, I, I don't do it anymore, but I do, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's, and it's, this is the thing. I've never said I'm not an actor anymore. Um, I've never said clear cut. I'm never doing this again because I don't believe in that. I don't believe in never. Um, except for when it comes to racism and homophobia, <laughs> get us nowhere. But, um, yeah, but, um, I don't generally believe in never. I don't never believe in never. Um, 
<laughs> but I, I don't, you know, I, I try to maintain a level of flexibility in my life. And the thing that I always loved about acting was you could learn where you had to stand, what you had to wear, what your lines were. You knew everything like clockwork. But there was an element of, especially in live performance, you had to release some of the structure in the sense that you couldn't control everything that was going to happen. You can't control if someone in the audience coughs. You can't control if someone forgets their cue line. You know, you can't control the entire environment around you. But what can you control, and I learned this from cognitive behavioral therapy and my wonderful therapist, what you can control is your reaction to those things. Mm -hmm. So knowing that when your, your gut reaction, your knee-jerk reaction may not always be the best reaction either. And you can sort of feel that and either follow through with it or like, you know, pivot to the thing that will be more productive for you. Um, and I think it's about that constant back and forth. And I mean, we're getting into some really deep stuff here and I hope it's making sense because it's very intellectual. Oh, this, this is so my ballgame. Like, your ballgame, great, great. I mean, like, I, I know you get it, but I also want to make sure that like everyone who's listening understands, you know, yeah. that like, you know, this is our approach to our relationships and our care and everything that we do in our lives and the choices that we make is subject to change. It's also something that requires flexibility constantly. Even if you think you're an inflexible person, you're being flexible every time you walk out the door. So I'm going to acknowledge your bravery. <laughs> For, for maintaining flexibility because there is no way that you're not flexible if you leave your house, right? You may not leave your house. Um, in which case, sometimes bringing in outside influences, bringing other people in who might add an unpredictable element can really be helpful in helping you release that kind of um, expectation. Um, but I think it's important to remember with all of this stuff, with your relationships with your care team, with your relationships with your loved ones and most importantly in your relationship with yourself, you know, that like, I always thought my body would be well. I never thought about the fact that I would end up with chronic illness and yet here I am. And actually I've had chronic illness for longer than I even would have thought I did because when I was a teenager, I was having panic attacks, you know, like, so it's, it's also about going at what point do I then also identify as this or identify as disabled or, um, I don't personally identify as disabled. I identify as a person who's living with chronic illness, but I know people who are, who identify as disabled, um, for sure, you know, who've been on the show. And I always think that's a brave decision too, because this is also the identity crisis of, mm. am I my, my illness or am I me? And you're you're you, you know, like your illness is a part of who you are. It is not who you are. Um, and I am here to remind you of that um, because I think it's very easy, especially in the early days of diagnosis or if you have an illness that is so all-consuming, whether it's a chronic pain issue or fatigue or mobility um, that can affect so many systems. And it's hard to see yourself as anything but this sick person. But every original thought you have, everything you do, um, it's yours it's individually yours. It makes you different from everyone else. And being different is brave. I'm sorry, but like, I really believe in courage, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I think, 
<laughs> I know. What, what am I apologizing for? Thank you. Thank you for that permission. So, you know, and I, I just, I think find what makes you hopeful. If this is boring you, don't listen to it anymore. Find someone else whose voice resonates with you, but um, you're, you're not alone. Man, the struggles that I went through when I, first of all, when I found out I had Hashimoto's disease, I went into work and threw myself a party because I was like, I have a diagnosis, you know? <laughs> this is why I've been coming into work at 2 p.m. Um, and then I had to leave work. I couldn't work anymore because I was too tired. And I wasn't, my boss couldn't rely on me anymore. I, I wasn't able to show up for her. And you know what? Like life threw me a curveball and I made something of it. And you can make whatever you want out of these curveballs. But like the one thing, I think it was, Oh gosh, someone who was, I'm trying to remember who it was who was on my show recently said that we're all going to be patients at some point. Mm -hmm. I think it might've been Tom Smith, um, who's a patient advocate with cystic fibrosis in the UK and, and said that we're all going to be patients at some point. So um, you have to sort of prepare yourself for that too. You know, that like whether you're a caregiver and something's been lacking in your care or whether you're a, a you know, a loved one who's not yet a patient, but maybe doesn't understand what your friend is going through or something like that. Like you'll be a patient one day too. We all will be. It may just not happen till the end of our lives, but like, you know, we're all going to be involved in the medical system and we're all going to go through travails. And, and it's about doing that with as much grace for ourselves and the people around us as we can. And that in itself is a nebulous and seemingly difficult to reach term. But I think sometimes it's just about taking deep breaths, finding the things that keep you calm, breaking things down one at a time, um, and removing the overwhelm. Because I do think it's very easy to get lost in that kind of overwhelm. And I hate when people say it's a choice. I don't think it's a choice to be overwhelmed. I think it's a choice not to get yourself out of it. Yes. yes. It's a choice to stay overwhelmed. It's not a choice to be overwhelmed, but it is a choice to stay overwhelmed. Um, so when people say, well, overwhelmed is a choice, I'm like, mm, that's not exactly correct. Um, I think I get into those states of overwhelm. I was in one yesterday, y'all. I was in a state of overwhelm yesterday and I was like, what do I need to do? Yeah. <laughs> it happens every day. And I was like, what do I need to do right now? And I separated myself from the situation. I meditated. I got right with myself and then I was able to re-engage, you know? Um, and I think this has an overarching lesson in it for people with chronic illness, but for everyone, for people who know people with chronic illness, for, for doctors, you know, um, it's also complicated, but it's also beautiful. <laughs> like you get one life, you might as well find the best way to live it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It sounds very throwaway and it's easy for me to say because I'm not living in chronic pain, you know, but, um, you know, I want to acknowledge that there are people who are living life anyway, despite that. And there are people who can't, you know, do things and, and who are really impaired. And like, that's where you have to get right in your head. I think, you know, like if you, if you are bed bound, if you're immobile, um, that's where the philosophy game <laughs> really, where your philosophical game has to get even stronger and it sucks that that's the case necessarily, but there are some wonderful resources and people out there who can provide so much hope um, 
and uh, constructive advice and help and resources. Um, you know, none of us are alone. That's the main thing. Like you're not the only person in bed. Um, you're not the only person who lives with pain. You're not the only person who lives with fatigue. Um, we all have it in our own ways. We have our own experiences and it's about acknowledging that our experience is important and no less important than any experience around us, but that we don't have to stay lonely. Um, that there's, even if it's a group on Facebook that you're a part of, or, um, a podcast you listen to, or a website or a blog that inspires you or a book that you're reading that is really helpful. You know, there are resources and that's really important for people to know. Cause when I got sick, I didn't know that. Um, and that's why I started talking about it and now I can't shut up. <laughs> I, I wonder since I've been in this now for what, almost five years, this, this chronic illness, well, I've had a chronic illness for 20 years, but like, like I said, since I was uh, 25. Like a, as or, an advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've been in the industry of chronic illness. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I actually do wonder how the perception of people who don't have them or don't have them yet has changed. So mm -hmm. we didn't know that there was community when we got them and we started jumping into this world but I, mm. I really wonder now if there are more people who are aware of it without having it still i really hope there are people listening to this podcast i think so don't have them yeah I, I i do think because more of us are talking about this stuff and more people are sort of coming out of the closet with their various experiences um to steal a term from another, <laughs> you know, realm. Um, but I, I do think that um, for sure, because of the power of social media um, and its reach and the fact that the internet is available in so many more places now, I think there are more and more people who are finding that there are resources available to them and that there are conversations being had. Um, I mean, in the year since I started the podcast, it's like not even quite a year now we're talking yeah. now it's like 11 months since I started my podcast and I've seen so many more people start talking openly about things on social media or start reaching out specifically about things. So I think there's more happening and I think that that gives, that gives me hope that more and more will continue to happen and that more of these conversations will keep expanding. And each one of you listening has uh, the capacity to be part of that too. It's yeah. not just you listening to us, uh, but, but- It's not just because we're really good at just chatting, you know? <laughs> like, like yes, Eva and I are really good at chatting, but that doesn't mean we're the only people who can have this conversation. Like everyone's welcome at that table and, and worthy. Yes. I think, yeah. uh, I think that's a really good note to end on. I yeah. promote each of you speaking up. Permission to speak. Permission to speak. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How lovely. How lovely. <laughs> I know. It's just such a nice thing to speak. Because I mean, really, like all of this has just been that, like, Eva gave me permission to speak. So, yeah, it's true. Y'all, I did, whether you liked it or not. Um, and, uh, you know, um, yeah, it, there's hope out there. That's like the big message that, like, 
hope. Hope is the message. Um, it took me a minute to figure that out. And I think it takes us all a minute. I don't think everyone goes, oh, great. I've got RA. I'll be fine. You know, that's not the first reaction. Um, but, you know, there, as soon as you get past the first reaction, <laughs> seek the hope, seek the resources, seek the people who are having the conversations, look for people who are brave Keep yourself around people who inspire you to be braver and to face more fears. Keep your close people close. Know who your people are. Um, and make sure that you're keeping your conversation as open and diverse as you can and, and not living in a vacuum either. Well, thank you for speaking up on the podcast and sharing your thank thoughts. You. This was wonderful. It's been a total pleasure, Eva. Thank you so much for having me on. You're so very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wellacopia podcast, part of Invisible Not Broken's network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit our subscribe button, tap those stars to give us a rating, or even better, a review, and share this episode with a loved one. If you're also interested in some chronic illness-specific inspiration on a weekly basis, sign up for our hashtag Wellspo weekly newsletter. Wellspo stands for wellness inspiration, by the way. Each week on Friday afternoons, we'll send you a short email that links to uplifting stories, summaries of new research, trending topics in the community, and more. You can sign up for the newsletter on wellacopia.com if you scroll to the bottom of our homepage or on blog.wellacopia.com newsletter. Both links will be in the show notes. If you ever want to submit a question or suggestion, feel free to send us an email, chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in again. Be kind, be gentle, be badass, and remember that healthcare is human care.